Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 87. So, Jesse, in your book, you write that, quote, it is always a paranoid time in America. What do you mean by that? I I mean that it's not a recent phenomenon. I mean that it's not something that only happens at times of crisis. I mean that it's uh, not something that disappears when you're not looking at it. That's the voice of Jesse Walker, the author of United States of Paranoia, a conspiracy theory, a book about the history of conspiracy theories in the United States, but also an exploration of this thesis, which is that paranoia, paranoid thinking, conspiratorial thinking, that is the driving force behind our political system. And it is the driving force behind a lot of our cultural identity. And it's not something that happens in the fringes. It's not something that happens in weird subcultures. It happens all the way through every aspect of our society. Now, of course, this could be said of any culture or any nation, but this book is specifically about the United States. But there's a lot to be gained here, no matter where you live. If you go back to the beginning of recorded history in in America, I mean, the beginning of the European settlement, immediately you see conspiracy theories, and they really don't let up from then till now. There may be times when it's a bit more intense, like right after 9-11 or something like that. But even at times of relative peace and prosperity, like the 1990s, you can have a ton of conspiracy theories uh, in play. You say that it's um, this is not something you should think of as existing only within people on the fringe or people who are extreme. Um, why is that? Uh, because, you know, the mainstream has its own conspiracy theories. Um, and I don't just mean by that um, the fact that the things that people think of as conspiracy theories, like, uh, you know, more than one person being involved with the Kennedy assassination and or, you know, UFOs being uh, from outer space and it's being covered up. It's not just that things like that actually have uh, a lot of people believing them. I mean, it, it's always, almost always been a majority, for example, who's thought that a conspiracy is behind the uh, Kennedy assassination. Um, but I mean that there are things that aren't even thought of as conspiracy theories, or at least aren't thought of as conspiracy theories at the time that they're going on, um, which nonetheless are by any you know, objective definition of the phrase, and which are you know, embraced not just by lots of people, um, but by the institutions that you know turn up their nose at things like Kennedy assassination theories. Um, anytime there's a, well, I shouldn't say anytime, but lots of times that there's a moral panic, for example, um, the sort of fears that congeal around um, a, a new subculture or a new practice or what have you um, will often take a conspiratorial turn. A, a recent example that I like to point to because it's it's recent enough that a lot of people remember it, but weird enough that people can feel removed from it is the satanic panic of the 1980s um, when uh, not just uh, people on the fringe who might have been saying such things in the 70s, but mainstream journalistic uh, organizations, uh, TV shows like 2020, um, people in the, the U.S. government, uh, juries who could send people to jail were taking seriously the idea that um, 
there was this vast network of satanic cults working behind the scenes, infiltrating daycares, uh, molesting children in rituals, uh, and, uh, you know, it's kidnapping people and killing them and then disposing of the bodies by perhaps cremating them. And that's why the police weren't able to find them. So this is uh, this is something that was taken very seriously by the mainstream in the 80s. Nowadays, people look back at it as this sort of strange episode. Um, and when people talk like that, they are described in the sorts of terms we use when we talk about the fringe. But it wasn't a fringe phenomenon when it was going on. Jesse was a guest on this show several years back, but his interview was only played in a couple sound bites, never the total interview. And I thought this was such a weird time in American politics. It might be interesting to go back and play the entire interview in its own episode. And that is what this is. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, Jesse Walker explains to us the United States of paranoia. All of that after this commercial break. Like so many of you, learning is something I constantly look forward to, which is why I enjoy having a subscription to The Great Courses Plus. There's always something new to learn, and The Great Courses Plus offers a large library of engaging video lectures presented by award-winning professors. You can learn about whatever interests you, history, science, psychology, even photography, and new courses are added all the time. I can't recommend any course more than Your Deceptive Mind with Dr. Stephen Novella, a neurologist, guest on the show who talked about conspiracy theories with Jesse Walker, who was the guest in this episode, and skeptic superstar who has his own show, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, does lectures all around the world. And this course, In the Great Courses, is great. It's a fascinating look at how your brain processes information, misinformation, and the neuroscience behind how your thinking works memory, perception, cognitive biases, and conspiracy theories. With The Great Courses Plus, stream as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere, from your smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV, and you can watch a course all at once or pick it up later on your schedule. I want you to sign up for The Great Courses Plus today because they're giving my listeners a wonderful offer. It is an entire month of unlimited access, watch as much as you can in a single month for free. Don't wait. Start your free month now. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to the program. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we're going into the archives and playing an old interview that was never played in its entirety with Jesse Walker, all about conspiratorial thinking and the United States of paranoia. And you, uh, that really leads into what you 
say often throughout the book is that you don't really see cons- you see conspiracy as uh, revealing to us something about the shared anxieties of the culture or the subculture, almost as if it's um, as you write folklore, right? Yeah, it, I mean, it is folklore. I mean, I should say that you know sometimes a conspiracy exists, and sometimes there's a conspiracy theory that is false but has elements of truth in it. Um, but even when a conspiracy theory doesn't have anything in it that's true about the object of the conspiracy theory, it says something true if it catches on about the anxieties and the experiences of the people who believe it. And it becomes this kind of funhouse mirror way of uh, looking at you know the way um, Americans of the past or present were seeing the world. Uh, I mean, one example, which is, uh, I mean, this always surprises people because it was such a strange thing for people to believe. But in the early 1940s, during World War II, it was fairly, there was a fairly widespread belief in the, among Southerners, white Southerners in the United States, um, that, uh, you know, black Southerners were in league with, you know, Hitler and or with the Japanese or in some versions with a conspiracy headed by Eleanor Roosevelt. And we're going to have, uh, you know, the South handed over to them. I mean, there was this idea of swastika clubs, um, you know, black Southerners in league with uh, the Nazi party, um, supposedly. And, you know, if Hitler won the war, they were going to be handed the South and, uh, you know, and uh, white Southerners would, you know, then they'd be the slaves, you know. And this was, on the one hand, it spoke to the anxieties that were going on in that place and time. Um, you know, whites afraid of uh, the people that uh, they were not treating well, who were below them on the social ladder, and also whites, uh, like, like most Americans, being afraid of uh, the you know the, not the Nazis overseas. Um, you know we, that we were at war at with, but it was also an echo of earlier conspiracy theories, stories that had been told in the antebellum era about uh, the alleged conspiracies uh, plotting slave revolts that perhaps some sort of outside force was uh, working behind the scenes to manipulate often northern abolitionists, but sometimes something else you know land pirates or Mississippi gamblers or, or some other cabal um, and so at, at the same time, it's, it's a way of seeing what people or a certain group of Americans were afraid of at this point in history. But also it was, uh, it was part of this long history of a particular story that kept getting told with new names and, and places being plugged into the old narrative, something that had existed since the days of slavery and would continue to z- exist afterwards. I mean, I write about conspiracy theories about the um, urban riots of the 1960s. And again, you're hearing those same echoes. Um, it, it sounds like, a, I mean, it's a very well-defined genre. And uh, they, they were, you know, telling a new version of an old story. With that in mind, the idea that um, oftentimes, or every time a conspiracy theory will tend to reveal what's um, the anxieties of the culture that's that's playing around with it, um, you talk in the book about birthers and how there's sort of some very specific things that are going on when when people really get into um, the idea that Barack Obama was not born in the United States and is a, secretly a Kenyan. Um, could you kind of break down from that perspective what what is what is someone who is believing that? What are they getting out of it? What are they expressing through that birther um, conspiracy theory? Well, obviously, it varies from one person to another. I mean, I, I um, describe a. Uh, uh, three sort of big reasons why I think that story, you know, caught on and persisted even after it was clear that the evidence wasn't there for it. 
Um, that doesn't mean that everyone subscribes to all three who picked up on it. Um, the first, and I think it, the most in, important in terms of just getting it launched, it wasn't so much about anxieties as it was about this desire for a magic bullet that you know could end someone's career, political career, without the pain of political persuasion. Um, I mean, if if you can prove Barack Obama uh, doesn't have the right to be president of the United States, you know, poof, there goes that problem. Uh, and, and as I uh, say in the book, you know, if you went to a birther convention in 2009, one thing you almost certainly wouldn't hear anyone say is I strongly support Obama's ideas about health care reform. It's just too <laughs> bad he's ineligible to be president. It was people, you know, who were against Obama to begin with. Right, right, but, then, right. but then beyond that, it's obviously bound up with this general suspicion of foreign influence and the foreign in general. Um, and this comes up in a lot of the rhetoric that people like, for example, Lou Dobbs used when he was sort of playing footsie with these ideas. Um, G. Gordon Liddy actually on Hardball um, directly said that if uh, if the birthers, if what the birthers were saying were true, were, was true, um, the president would be an illegal alien. Um, and, you know, if you look at Obama's biography, there's plenty in there already that's going to can fan these sort of nativist anxieties. He spent a chunk of his childhood in Indonesia. His father came from Kenya. Uh, when, uh, as a boy, he did live in the United States, he was in Hawaii, you know, the one American state that isn't actually a part of the Americas. So if you don't conceive of the United States as a multicultural nation, um, the president is already metaphorically foreign, and conspiracy theories are very good at transmuting the metaphorical into the real. And it's a it's a great example too of just um you know it's one of those things that people once they once they hear this this narrative a certain kind of person is not going to take much effort to try to debunk that narrative because it helps them fulfill their uh you know their preconceived notions about what they would like to be true about uh if you know even if you're not a person who's deeply invested in the birther thing i would imagine that um when you do hear about it there's a certain kind of person who's like hmm yeah I can see that being true, maybe. And most people don't take the time to, you know, when they read a story, and this is not just true of conspiracy stories, it's, you know, true of all kinds of stories, to then go out and actively seek out the responses and say, well, what are, the, what are people saying that might call this into question? So if you just read one story and it presents what looks like pretty good evidence, that might be enough for somebody. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have I have one friend who was at least for a while into uh, or open to let's, let's say treated the birther stuff with more respect than it deserved, and and you know it, it um, he wasn't one of these fear of the foreign people, but he was someone who was strongly opposed to Barack Obama, and I think this uh, um, fit into I mean for on policy grounds, and this sort of fit into his ideas about and what wouldn't this be good, you know. Mm-hmm. And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor. We've all noticed the movement towards sustainable food for the future, and there's one protein source that's starting to dominate the conversation. Crickets. Yeah, crickets. Before you balk, listen, they're exceptionally high in complex protein packed full of micronutrients like iron and calcium and omega-3s. And if you want to eat sustainably and responsibly, it's 20 times more resource efficient to raise crickets for protein than cows. The best news? This startup called EXO, that's E-X-O, has made crickets easy to eat by making protein bars with cricket flour. These bars are not only high in protein, but also low sugar, 
gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, and most importantly, they're delicious. Now, this makes sense because a three-star Michelin chef developed the recipes. Now, I tried one of these and I loved it. I ate it for breakfast and I wasn't hungry for hours. It was absolutely delicious. It didn't feel like it was fake or weird. It really just tastes like a delicious food that you would never know was made with crickets because it's made with cricket flour. Now, here's a special offer. And this is what I want you to do. It's EXO. And they want everyone to try these bars. So if you go to exoprotein.com slash so smart, they're offering a sampler pack with all their most popular flavors for less than $10. That's exoprotein.com slash so smart, exoprotein.com slash so smart. This is the food of the future, and this is your chance to try it before everyone else. And now we return to the program. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and then we go right back into the interview with Jesse Walker. I think a lot of people uh, would probably agree that right now it seems like there's a lot of uh, conspiracy thinking and paranoia coming from what appears to be uh, the political right in the United States. Um, and you look at sort of the last decade, the recent things like death panels and FEMA camps and the birther thing and all that sort of stuff. Um, what do you think accounts for the the fact that it seems tilted to the right right now? Well, I mean, the, the thing is that um, people have this narrative that you hear that, you know, the right quote unquote went crazy, you know, in 2009 or sometimes, you know, 2008, people will say, um, and there was a sudden surge in conspiracy theories. Uh, I think you look at the Bush years, there were plenty of conspiracy theories on the right. They were not in general directed at the government. Uh, I mean, there were some conservatives who didn't like Bush and they would be more likely to embrace a story like that. But, you know, they were about terrorists. They were about illegal aliens. You know, it would be, you know, sort of Muslims and Mexicans and, you know, and their alleged supporters at home um, would be the, the stars of those stories. So it's not so much there's this sudden surge on the right as there is a change in direction. Um, and something which people weren't necessarily paying as much attention to before, because we have this idea that a conspiracy theory has to involve the government, um, which, you know, obviously there's tons of conspiracy theories that are aimed at people outside the government, outside, um, outside the United States altogether. Um, but, you know, it, it just doesn't register in the same way. But, I mean, there was intense paranoia, you know, especially tied up with the war on terror. Um, so... You know, so now that there is a Democrat in office, that kind of attention, that kind of fear gets more attention. The fears on the left um, don't get as much attention. The fears in the center, as always, you know, don't get defined as uh, political paranoia at all, usually. Um, but it's a uh, it, it, that uh, that doesn't mean that there was you know this sudden surge in paranoia so much as just a change in the in the form it took. You mentioned the FEMA camp thing. That's interesting because that's a story that tends that seems to sort of migrate from the left to the right and back again. Yeah, depending on who's in power. Um, even before there was FEMA, you had stories about you know Nixon is planning to create concentration camps and so on. But you know after FEMA is created in the yeah, that's at the end of the Carter administration. But the first FEMA conspiracy theories I'm aware of were sort of a byproduct of the Iran Contra 
um, a scandal. And, and there was a, you know, this story about you know, Oliver North and this sort of war gaming sort of planning he was, he was doing that. And, and, you know, and, and this story emerged from, you know, this, you know, true report sort of spiraled out into this thing about, you know, FEMA was going to be putting, um, you know, opponents of, you know, Central American policy in, into camps that migrated to the right in the militia days in the 90s when Clinton was in power. Um, and now it's it's popping up on the uh, right again um, uh, with Obama in power. Yeah, I, In your book, you were talked about how, uh, like, I lived through Katrina. I had a lot of Katrina experiences. I, I covered a lot of Katrina stuff when I was uh, a uh, print journalist. And you could see the conspiracies sort of um, emerging from both sides, like you write about in the book, where you have one side is saying, uh, they're killing each other in the streets. They're looting everywhere. The Superdome is, is just rape and pillage. And then um, the other side is saying that this was uh, the government blew up the levees and made it made Katrina happen. And you, and you actually can see that those deep anxieties coming out in those conspiracies like you write about. Yeah. And that's not even left versus right. That's more about, you know, elite paranoia versus grassroots paranoia, which I think is is ultimately a much more interesting division. Um because, you know, I mean, that was, I mean, the sorts of the, the stories that, um, the false stories that spread um, about what was allegedly happening in New Orleans um, uh, during and right after Katrina, that was an example of the kind of a centrist fear. These, these uh, unsupported rumors, often completely false, other times severely exaggerated, um, that were taken seriously by the mass media and which actually affected, um, you know, a, government policy. I mean, there was this deliberate decision to have this more militarized response because people had this perception of, you know, looters in the streets and so on. Um, this didn't usually take the form of uh, conspiracy theories, but it's a more sort of broad dread kind of paranoia. And sometimes it got, you know, linked to sort of conspiracy, conspiracy-esque stories about gangs. Um, and, you know, so people, if when someone brings up like a, a phrase like paranoia after Katrina, People think about, oh, yeah, those rumors that uh, the government was uh, deliberately blowing up New Orleans levees to drive out black resident, uh, residents. But the, um, the kind of paranoia that was much more destructive was the kind that was taken seriously by the people in power. Um, I mean, that's by definition, people in power have, uh, have a greater ability to, uh, to have an impact on the world. That's what power is. And I, I think and this is one of the main themes of the book, you know, elite paranoia is much more destructive than grassroots paranoia. Sometimes you have uh, something like the Oklahoma City bombing. It's not as though grassroots paranoia can't have terrible results, um, but it's much more common uh, for elite paranoia to have that kind of far reaching and destructive impact. Yeah, it's a, it, it is a really fascinating and, and something I'd never really thought about because you go all the way back to um, – settlers before America is even America. And there's all these crazy, uh, paranoid episodes surrounding, um, native Americans and, um, uh, around, um, other types of, uh, movements that people think are stirring within the, uh, the, the, the natives and the populace and that sort of thing. Yeah. I know. And, and, uh, I mean, the, I mean, which ranged from, you know, plausible fears that maybe, you know, a, a tribe was uh, preparing to attack all the way. I mean, I mean, that's the sort of conspiracy theory that, you know, could turn out to be true all the way out to these really bizarre um, 
tales in which uh, Satan came to uh, the New World before the settlers and brought some diehard pagans with him because he saw that the gospel was gaining ground in Europe and that he set these um, old European pagans up as the Indians and was directing their attacks against the settlers. Um, and this, you know, is not just sort of a, a strange belief that, you know, some prominent Puritans and others took seriously. It was an example of um, something that had a really destructive real world impact. Uh, I, I talk about King Philip's War in which, uh, you know, New England settlers um, had some Indian communities on their side in the war and also uh, a lot of Indians on the other side of the war. And I, I and I, I get in the book into like sort of assassination stories and all how that led to the outbreak of the war. But you know, for, in terms of the the point I'm making now, the the important thing is that um, during the war itself, even though there were Indian tribes allied with the with the European colonists, and even though there were so-called praying villages um, filled with you know Indians who had converted to Christianity. Um, and were you know trying to assimilate themselves uh, to an extent with um, the the European uh, with the Europeans uh, that there nonetheless were you know people who were saying they're all against us they're all in confederacy against us they're all in conspiracy against us and the Indians in the praying village uh, villages were rounded up and interned on Deer Island um, where tons of people died uh, survivors were sl- uh, sold into slavery it's one of the a great early atrocities of American history, and it also foreshadows things like the Japanese internment in World War II. And, you know, paranoia is right at the root of it. One of the stories, uh, before we go, there's one story that uh, I was so like, oh my God, this is so bizarre, was uh, you talk about a uh, program called COINTELPRO. Yeah. And what makes that insane to me is that it is a conspiracy of sorts to uh, mess with certain groups of people by encouraging them to believe that there is a conspiracy afoot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, the FBI was not just, and this, this is um, from 1956 to 1971, really picking up speed in the 60s. It was officially shuttered in 1971, although some COINTELPRO-like things have been done since then. Um, people will argue, you know, it, it, about calling other things, you know, the new COINTELPRO. There are some technical dis- differences among them, but I, I don't want to get into that or, uh, that debate. But es- essentially, the FBI was not just um, infiltrating and spying on uh, dissident groups. Um, the FBI was you know, deliberately disrupting them. Uh, and one way that uh, its agents and informants would do this was by spreading word that someone else was the informant, someone else was the snitch, someone who didn't have any contact with the FBI, or at least none that they knew of. And and this was, you know, a, a deliberate attempt um, to make people afraid of one another and unwilling to work with one another. And so what I write in the book was, and of course, the reason the FBI was doing this was because the FBI was paranoid. Um, they, they were seeing, you know, communists behind the civil rights movement and, and things like that. Um, and of course, this is an example of a real world conspiracy. People who talked about the, you know, the FBI doing things like this, um, they, uh, you know, were, you know, off and before it was exposed in 1971, um, or often, you know, looked at the way someone says, look down their nose at a quote-unquote conspiracy theorist um, nowadays. So when you put all that together, 
you basically have a conspiracy to defeat alleged subversive conspiracy uh, conspiracies by convincing the so-called subversives that they were being conspired against. And if that's not a <laughs> hall of mirrors, I, I don't know what is. It's, um, it's so wonderful because it really does illustrate that this is a this is something that's been with us for a long time and will always be with us. And it's just part of being a person. And um, I think your book does a great job of illustrating that and illustrating um, how it's been a fundamental part of the political process in the United States. And I, I really dig it. It was a really cool read. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Let, uh, if for people out there who want to know uh, how to keep up with you, how can they do that? Uh, you can go to reason.com. That's where I work. I write there regularly. And uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my uh, handle there is not Jesse Walker, N-O-T-J-E-S-S-E-W-A-L-K-E-R. And I link to anything that strikes my fancy. And what do you, uh, what are you, what's in the future for Jesse Walker? What are you working on now? Uh, what am I working on now? Lots of short-term things. I'm, I'm not quite ready to dive into another really big uh, narrative. This came out, uh, I think, 12 years after my first book, and I, I, I don't plan to wait uh, that long between this one and my third book. But I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm enjoying the uh, the break from you know things that are you know uh, over a hundred thousand words long. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Go to exoprotein.com slash so smart. Have you ever eaten crickets? They're only one of the most sustainable and nutritious protein sources in the world. And exo, that's E-X-O, is making it tasty with nutrient-dense cricket protein bars made with only natural ingredients that you can pronounce. And they're made by a three-star Michelin chef. Good for the environment, good for you. Go to exoprotein.com slash so smart to get four different bars for less than $10. Head to boingboingpodcast.com for more great podcasts like this one. Go to youarenotsosmart.com to get all the show notes, previous episodes, which you can also find at iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. Follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. On Facebook, it's just slash You Are Not So Smart. And on Patreon, same thing, slash You Are Not So Smart.